Father God, Lord, I thank you for today, God. And today, Lord, I thank you for the people that are here today, God. And I, I just pray that you would speak into their hearts and their lives. I pray for anyone who's listening over the, the podcast and listening, listening through the audio or watching the YouTube clips, God. I, I pray, Father God, that you would challenge our hearts, God, and we would just have that humble heart to receive receive the challenge, God, and be honest with ourselves, be honest with you, God. Lord, there's those bits in the Bible that aren't always easy, God, and I, today is maybe one of those parts for some people, God. Lord, I, I pray, Father God, that you give us just that great hope in you. Lord, that we leave here excited about what you're doing in our lives, excited about the things that you're calling us to do, Father God. In your name, amen. So, guys... Today we're in our Acts series. You'll remember last week, it was Paul, wasn't it? He's, he starts his trip, he leaves Ephesus after the riot, and then he goes through Macedonia and Achaia, and he goes and he's collecting this big financial gift to take to the church in Jerusalem. And it ends really with this whole section speaking to the Ephesian elders, and it ends on the beach at Miletus, where he says goodbye to them and gets on board that boat. Today, the, the, the overarching thing that we're going to be looking at through, as we go through the kind of the narrative of the chapter is risk. If we just listen to how the chapter starts, often the Bible doesn't highlight these things, but they're, they're hidden behind. Listen to what these guys are doing. These guys are taking their lives in their hands, getting on this boat to travel down to Jerusalem. Not these massive seagoing vessels, but vessels at risk of storm. So... Today, that's going to be really our challenge. Where we're going to be sitting, where we're going to be waiting, is our challenge in our relationship with risk. And asking that question, is it okay to risk for the things of God? Is it okay to risk for the Lord? So verse 1 to 9, let's get into it. It says, after we had torn ourselves away from them, that's the Ephesian elders, we put out to sea and sailed to Kos, straight to Kos, good lettuce. The next day, we went to Rhodes... And from there to Patara, we found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia and went on board and set sail. So obviously that ship had stopped there. So they changed ships. They found another ship and set sail. It says, after sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre. Remember we, Luke's writing, he's there with them. We landed at Tyre where our ship was to unload its cargo. And we sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. That's weird. They urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including the wives and the children, accompanied us out of the city. And there on the beach, we knelt to pray. And after saying goodbye to each other, we went on board the ship and they returned home. So they set off. And it says, we continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemais, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist. Whoa, he's back in the show. Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Some translations say who were prophetesses. So let's bring the map up just so you can see the kind of um, distance these guys are traveling. They leave from here, say goodbye to Ephesian elders, get some lettuce at Kos, go round here past Rhodes and land at Patara. That's where these guys, they change the ship and then they come here and they come round down the south side of Cyprus and they land at Tyre. And it's there at Tyre with the guys there that they're really um, 
through the spirit, the believers say, hey, don't go back to Jerusalem. And then they come down here and then they come to Caesarea. And that's kind of where we've got to in the narrative. This is where Philip's living here on the coast, Caesarea Maritima. Sometimes you hear of Caesarea Philippi, that's kind of up here somewhere. Caesarea Maritima, that is the main port for Jerusalem. Jerusalem's up a hill, isn't it? It's on a mountain, so it's no port. That's the main port for Jerusalem. It's a kind of administrative center. Jerusalem has Romans in it, but the real administrative center, the barracks, the, the main kind of force of Rome is based in Caesarea. You may remember me saying from some, some of the earlier talks that actually as you entered the harbor at Caesarea, there were these massive statues either side of the harbour entrance as you came in. It was an impressive place. It was a centre of government and power. And they had booked online an Airbnb, and coincidentally, it was with Philip, the evangelist. And so they went and they stayed with Philip. He has these four daughters. And whilst they're there, staying with these guys in Caesarea. I think it's kind of cool that you begin to see just God working, working in different people's lives. And Philip, who's been going around, obviously settled in this place and got married and had children. You see this flow of life in amongst this, this beautiful story, the mega story that God's doing. You see this just normal flow of life in these great heroes of the Bible. And so we have this interesting story that whilst they're there in Caesarea, we have this interesting scene. And so that's verses 10 to 16 that I'm going to read. It says, after we had been there a number of days, that's in Caesarea, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt. Imagine doing that, right? He takes his belt off. He took Paul's belt and he tied his own hands and feet with it and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, when we, so Luke and the guys with him, when we heard this, we, that's the traveling party, remember those different representatives and guys like that from the different towns, Thessalonica, Berea, all those guys, we and the people there in Caesarea pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. And after this, we started on our way to Jerusalem. So they, they leave Caesarea, they start going. And some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Manasseh, where we stayed. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. It's a challenging passage, isn't it? It's a weird passage, really. It's a challenging passage of scripture. And in some ways, it's, it demonstrates the crux of this whole, in the, in the middle, the crux of this whole chapter there, bringing out this question of risk in the service of the Lord. And it's challenging because for us in our culture and our society, we live in a very risk-averse kind of culture, don't we? Everything has tried to be mitigated against or prevented against. Insurance, we've got all kinds of insurance. You can now get insurance against the weather. You know, there's insurance for everything. We try and limit risk. And for most people, and that's just not a bad thing, but for most people, you know, the goal, the, the great dream is a safe life, a comfortable life, have a home and some money and some form of security. And all that stuff's great. But if that's where your ultimate security in is, it's not great. So what is going on here? Because it's the Holy Spirit speaking, is it? Is God anti 
Paul taking risks? Is God the one who's saying, Paul, I am not into you taking these kind of risks? Okay, It's not, is it? If you think back to what we looked at last week in Acts 20, what does Paul say about the reason he's going up to Jerusalem in the first place? He says this in verse 22, 24. It says, and now, compelled by the Spirit... I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. He expects something crazy could happen, right? Not knowing what will happen to me there. If you remember last week in in Acts 20, he also says, you know, actually imprisonment and danger and persecution await me in all the cities I go to. He says, so now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Who is it that's compelled Paul to go to Jerusalem? The Holy Spirit, right? But who is it that's told the guys that Paul's going to be bound up in Jerusalem? The Holy Spirit. So we get entire. That's where it gets a bit confusing. So entire, we have these guys hearing this word of what's going to happen. Actually, we don't know exactly what they've said. Most likely, it's similar to Agabus because they encourage him, don't go to Jerusalem. Then we get to Caesarea and it's a more fuller story. And Agabus comes down, ties Paul's hands up and says, Tim, this is what's going to happen. We don't know that Agabus says, don't do this. Agabus just says, when you go to Jerusalem, this is what's going to happen to you. Your hands are going to be bound. And as a result of hearing this, both those believers in Tyre and the believers there in Caesarea, close companions of Paul, like Luke, and the others there, they weep. And they're like, please, Paul, please don't, don't go up to Jerusalem. And the ironic thing is, these guys, these guys have risked so much for the gospel that just getting there by sea isn't particularly safe. You know, later we hear Paul in one of the letters where he's describing, actually, I've been shipwrecked like three times. Ship isn't a particularly like, safe way to travel. These guys have been on the mission field. They've gone into towns that they've had to kind of flee from and run away from. They've been there and witnessed people get persecuted and attacked for for the gospel. So what is it that's going on here? What's God doing? God said, go to Paul, go to Jerusalem through the Spirit. The Spirit's compelled him to go to Jerusalem. And letter prophetically says, by the way, you're also going to be bound and arrested in Jerusalem. No, see, God doesn't say you're going to die or anything like that. But Luke and the others, they hear what God shares, they hear what goes on, and they can't deal with the risk of what Paul is doing. Say, Paul, well, in effect, don't do it. In effect, they're saying, we know God's called you to do that, but don't, don't do it. It's too risky. Don't do it because, you know, God said you're going to get imprisoned if you go up there. He's warning you not to go. God is giving him a warning in some senses. He's giving him this word of what's going to happen, but he's not warning him not to go. You know, rather he's giving him this advanced glimpse, and you'll see it clearer later on, that he's giving him an advanced, or an advantage really, this glimpse of what is going to happen. He's giving him a slight glimpse into his perspective, God's perspective. You know, in a sense, it's actually this reminder to Paul, that God knows everything that is coming. God knows everything that's going to happen. But whilst Paul and his companions in that one moment, it seems crazy and there's maybe challenge up ahead, God knows what's going to happen. And sometimes when we hit points where we're speaking about risk, we just got to stand on that. It's like, I don't know what's going to happen, but I trust God. 
that God is good. And it's this kind of heads up to Paul of, hey, Paul, by the way, when you go up there, this is going to happen. But also, it's very likely, and you'll see this, an encouragement that he isn't going to die. Paul doesn't know what's going to happen, right? He says, I don't know what's going to happen. But there's this great encouragement within that, that, hey, that's great. I'm not going to die at this point. Even though he's ready for dying, God's kind of keep helping Paul keep ahead of the ball. You know, walking that path that God calls us into is awesome and adventurous and so great, but also many times can appear seriously risky, very, very risky. You know, when we were coming to Hong Kong, and I know like mama's experienced this going off to Morocco and places like that. When we were coming to Hong Kong, there were various people in our lives, some Christians, some non-Christians. It's like, God, it's too risky. You're nuts. You know, why are you going to Hong Kong with no job, nowhere to particularly go? You need a security. I remember saying to one quite old lady what we were doing, and she said, you're completely mad. Why do you think, you know, Paul says to those guys, why do you break my heart? Because, you know, he, he says after that that he's ready not just to be arrested, but to die for his faith, that these are the guys that he's been discipling and walking with and teaching guys, trust the Lord, walk with the Lord, walk with him. And here they are saying, actually, what God's calling you to do is too risky. Don't do that. But the truth is, the riskiest thing that we can ever do isn't following God's word and God's voice into our lives and call into our lives. The riskiest thing we can ever do is build our security on an illusion. Build our security on career, on our bank balance, on our home, on the stuff that we've got. Sometimes it can be even building our security on another person. Safety, effectively, is an illusion. Because why is it an illusion? Because no one knows tomorrow. Remember, like, financial crash, and suddenly you see people who've lost everything, and they're on, they're, it's like their whole world has fallen apart because they've lost all the money. Security is an illusion. Because we don't, no one knows tomorrow. Only one person knows that, God. Only God knows that. And the only place, therefore, to find real security, true security, is in him. The only person who cannot take any risks is God. But he doesn't get bored. But the only person who can't take any risks is God. Because the very nature of risk is that we have no idea of what's going to happen. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's like... I don't think throwing Eliana up in the air is a risk because I have this real definite like foreknowledge of I'm going to catch her. But like if I was to throw a blindfold and run away, then yeah, that's a real big risk because I don't know if someone else is going to be there to catch her. You know, the risk for us is we do stuff not knowing what the next step is. We don't know what's going to happen. But God does. God knows what's going to happen. He's the only person. He doesn't have that uncertainty. And so if we look at Paul's situation there, Paul not going to Jerusalem is just as risky as going to Jerusalem. You know, what could happen to Paul? Paul doesn't know, right? Paul could get murdered in the street. Paul could, uh, Paul could get run over by a cart. Uh, probably a bit slow. <laughs> Paul could die in some other kind of crazy thing, a sickness, or I, I don't know. He could get covered in hummus and die. Like... <laughs> Anything could happen, right? Taking risks for the things of God is right. It's right. Doing something is risky, right? Doing something is risky. You step out, you put your neck out. But also doing 
nothing, not doing something, is also risky. You'll see that later when we look at a little image of the, what happened in the wilderness with the Israelites. You see, security, our security, our safety, isn't the only thing that we risk when we're taking a risk. What about what won't happen if Paul doesn't take the risk? And this is a crucial part of us understanding godly risk-taking, taking risks in him. What about the people who won't be saved? What about the world that won't be changed? What about the lives that will look totally different because he didn't take a risk? I think of Peter Anderson, who heads up Destiny Edinburgh. We heard from him a couple of weeks back, and he took a massive risk moving at the age of 22, so young, right, to go and start Destiny Edinburgh. Moving cities, went there to start the church. Huge risk. I know that had he not done that, I very likely wouldn't be stood here doing what I'm doing today. Maybe I'd be doing something similar, but because of decisions he made, because of risks he made, what my life looks like today, I believe, is completely altered. Imagine Jackie Pullinger, if she didn't, or imagine Hong Kong, if Jackie didn't take the risk to get on that boat, or the risk to get off it, you know? If we think about, in the, like, even some of you guys, your lives have been touched by Jackie. You know people whose families have been impacted by her ministry. Imagine if she hadn't taken the risk. And that's a central part of risk taken for the Lord, that we're not taking risks for ourselves to do with like, okay, well, I'll take this risk and maybe I'll get a load of money, okay? It's actually we take risks to honor him and glorify him through seeing other people served. See, Paul's whole life up until that moment has been just one massive risk. He just keeps risking everything. God's giving him a warning at this point or giving him some insight. And so everyone freaks out and says, actually, don't go to that. Imagine if he'd have heard about before he went into Lystra the first time. By the way, you're going to be stoned and actually you're going to be, well, some commentators believe he actually was dead. Some just says like completely not like, knocked out but that you know usually when you're stoned stoning is an execution you'd be stoned to death and then they dump his body outside of the town you think of his life he's been stoned he's been beaten he's been whipped he's been chased out of out of towns he's been shipwrecked his entire life has been a risk but in that moment whilst he stood there think about it it seems completely crazy to paul to say guys it's too risky Think about this. It would seem very risky to Paul to go back to Lystra, the town where he was stoned and dumped outside the city as dead, right? But what does he do? He goes back into the city. He goes back into the city where the guys tried to kill him. And he goes back in like the next day. But remember, he even returns later on a later missionary journey like we looked at. But remember on that journey, somebody leaves with him. Who leaves with him? Timothy leaves with him, doesn't he? Timothy comes with him. Imagine if Paul hadn't taken the risk to go back to Lystra, this town that tried to kill him, and Timothy hadn't left with him, that he just stayed there. We wouldn't know about Timothy. The people all through Macedonia and Achaia wouldn't have been blessed in the same way. Timothy's life, if Paul hadn't taken that risk, would have been completely different. So many believers' lives, the foundations of Christianity would have looked completely different. But Paul chose to take the risk. So despite all the risks, it's still right to take risks for God. Why is that? Because within our risk-taking in the things of God, we're also taking risks for the benefit of others. We're taking risks for them. It's this kind of self-sacrificial 
service, the self-sacrificial risk-taking. Really, though, the people that you'd be impacting through that, they may never realize or may, may never think about it because they've not experienced the weight of that risk. He risked his life every single day, and it was the right call. Why? So that some may be saved, so that some may be called to the knowledge of the truth, so that he may complete the race, that he would follow and complete the task that the Lord had given him. That's godly risk-taking, not taking a risk to win something for ourselves, to build ourselves up for our own glory, but actually putting it all on the line, just like Jesus put it all on the line for his glory. You know, Jesus put everything on the line for you and for me so that we could be reunited to him and so that we in him could be glorified. That's the heart of biblical Christ-centered risk-taking. It's taking risks like Jesus. And you know, there are many people in the Bible, all throughout the Bible, who we just see taking risks. The Bible is just a story of a bunch of nutters who just trust God and just go for it wild radical lives that they lead you know the biggest blow we spoke earlier about the risk of not doing something the biggest blow the people of israel ever faced was when they didn't risk it was when they didn't follow the word of god they didn't follow the calling of god and remember they get to the edge of the promised land they get to the edge and sometimes guys you've got your promised land there but the risk is just too great you can't trust god enough to walk into it and i challenge you guys today it can seem hard, but take the risk to step into that promised land. And they get there, don't they? They get to the edge of the promised land and they send in 12 spies, Jacob, Caleb, and the other 10. They send in those guys and they look and they come back and Jacob and Caleb, and they all report, look, these guys are massive. They're giants. But Jacob and Caleb say, surely God's with us. Let's take the risk. Let's do it. Let's go. Let's go and get these guys. Let's go and do this thing. The other 10, they say, no, 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 it's far too risky. And the whole people of Israel side with those 10 and they turn their back. And, you know, when it's really tough in the wilderness, there's a part where it speaks about they have a go at Moses and say, why did you bring us in, into this like, wilderness? Well, let's go back to Egypt. Let's go back to Egypt. Well, that's crazy, isn't it? Because that's their slavery. God brings the victory. You know, when Jess and I moved to Hong Kong, when we moved here to plant the church, I said some, there were some folk around us who thought we were crazy. There's some people who still can't quite work out how everything's happened the way it's happened. You know, we landed here with no job, no house. We didn't know a lot of people here. There were some folks here we knew. It was this kind of raw, radical time where it's just like, ah, just trust God. But it was a massive risk. I remember 48 hours, Jess and I were in my parents' house. Our bags were basically packed down there. Mine was, no, um, our bags were basically packed down there. And waiting just to go, and I thought, this is nuts. Like, we're just getting on a plane to go, and I have no idea what's gonna happen on the other side. But God made the way. You know, we think of guys like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. My shack, your shack, and a bungalow. They risk it all, don't they, to stand up for their faith. And they go to the furnace and they say, no, no, we're not going like, to turn away from God. We're not going to renounce him you know, because the Lord will deliver us. And they say this thing, which is very powerful and challenging. It's like, even if he doesn't, he's still the Lord. That even if it doesn't work out quite the way that we're expecting it, 
because it's not all promises of everything's going to work out exactly like we expect it. You know, we take risks expecting God to come through and it's going to work in, in the way that maybe we think or hope. And God will always bring the victory and will always bring the breakthrough. But sometimes it may not look exactly like we expect. Like, what's the worst that can happen? Well, some people say, well, actually, you die. If that's the worst that can happen. But the truth is, remember, from God's perspective, you're already living with him because he's outside of time in eternity. And so our bodies stopping, you know, if you're in him, you already have eternal life. So I don't believe God's just like, oh, I, don't, I don't care about that. And there is this thing of life. But it's not the ultimate thing. Ultimately, it's where are you at in, inside? Are you spiritually alive in him or not? If you take a look at the apostles, they love God. They followed the word of God, but nearly all of them suffered very terrible deaths because they risked it all. But death wasn't the issue because their Lord and their God... Not in some weird way, you know, where they're like, actually, I don't care about my body because we should honor our bodies and all this. But actually, Jesus had already defeated death. That's why the early Christians who were fed to the lions in the Colosseum could die with a smile on their face because they knew of something bigger, something greater. And in our play it safe world, it can be hard. And we can often forget that and put our temporary reality above our eternal reality. And so guys, think on that today. Let that challenge you a little bit today. And we're going to go into it a bit more in the, the next section. Is God calling you to something that's radical and wild and risky? If it's his call, go for it. So Paul then he goes up to Jerusalem and he meets the elders. And it says this, okay, verses 17 to 26. It says, when we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us, they went to see James. And all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, that's believed in Jesus, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? That they will certainly hear that you have come. So do what we tell you. Do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. These men join in their purification rites and pay their expenses so that they can have their head shaved. Expensive haircut, maybe. Then everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food, sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. Wow, that's a really weird verse. It's a really strange kind of group of verses. What happens there? The elders say, you know, thousands of Jews that believed. Isn't that awesome? And they say this other thing. They're talking about believing in Jesus and that they're all zealous for the law. They're zealous for the law. James and the elders then, they encourage Paul to join these four guys 
pay for all the stuff that needs to be done, pay for their seven days of purification rites to show the believers, these thousands of these believers, that Paul is living in obedience to the law. Paul goes along with it. Why on earth do you think he does that? Well, I think in one way, you know, I, d- I don't think Paul is, is in a place where he feels he needs to do this stuff to be purified because he knows that Christ has made him pure, that his purity doesn't come from what he can do through the law, but it comes from what Christ has done already in fulfilling the law. So why does he do it? Well, one, we see actually Paul coming under often the authority of these guys. And there's this thing of they say, do what we tell you. And he is kind of persuaded by that and honors these guys and does that. By doing it, there's this peace that's maintained for the unity of the church. Remember, Paul says, to the Jews I became as a Jew for the sake of the gospel. So what has happened then to these Jews who believe in Jesus? What's going on here? These Jews who believe in Jesus, they've heard these false reports about Paul. What's going on with these guys? Well, these guys, they're actually putting their Jewishness, they're putting their culture, they're putting their worldview, the way they see stuff, above the gospel, as great as culture and all these things are. See, they're not approaching Paul in brotherly love. In their understanding, challenging him and saying, why are you doing it like this? There is this anger that's there. They're identifying with that culture and tradition more than they are with the unity they have with Paul in Christ. Remember last week I said, actually, our unity in Christ has to come up before our tradition, before our culture, before our passport. But this whole thing is so ironic. And the irony here with the whole kind of scene is that they've been informed, falsely informed, that Paul's been teaching Jews everywhere who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses. You know, that's turning away from the law. Why is that ironic? Well, the ironic thing is, what have the Jewish people and all humanity been doing for all of time? They have literally just been doing that forever turning away from the law. In fact, every single person turns away from the law, that no one can fulfill it. No one can fulfill the law. At some point, we, in our lives, we turn away from the law. We do something contrary to the law, but there is one who fulfilled the law. There is one who kept every part of the law, who never broke the law once, who lived completely blameless before the law, that when the judgment of the law is held up, he was declared righteous before it. Then, you know, that perfect record, the perfect record of Christ, is offered to us freely. That you, in the same way, could be declared righteous before the Father. It makes it as if we had lived just like the blameless one before the law. Paul, in his ministry, what's he doing? He's actually doing the exact opposite. He's calling people back to the law. He's calling people back to God, but reminding them that they're never going to be able to keep the law. That only in Christ can we live at peace with the law. You know, Paul speaks about, does that mean that, okay, because Christ Christ died for me, I can just go away and sin, I can go and do whatever I want. It's like, by no means. But actually, it's only in Christ that we can ever hope to live towards the law. That's a choice everyone has. Will you take the free gift of Christ's perfect record? Or 
will you try and be perfect yourselves? That everyone who has ever said, or if you come across people who say, you know, I don't quite get the, the like, heaven and hell stuff. Like, I just think if you're a good person, you get to go to heaven. If you're a good person, you get to go to heaven. And it sounds nice and it fits perfectly in probably a lot of cultures that we're part of. But the challenge with that is it's if you are good enough, if you achieve, if, if your actions and what you do is good enough, then you get to go to heaven. It means that Jesus is not your God, is he is not your savior. You are, and you will never, ever be good enough to get yourself to heaven. So, you know the, what the Bible says? It says, no, no one is good. Not even one. That's massive. That's a huge statement that no one's good, but that there is only one who is good, who was ever good enough, Jesus Christ. And you see, he offers you that perfect record. Tell people that. The challenge with the gospel is a challenge of humility and pride. Because it's, will you humble yourself to say, I cannot, I never could, but he has and he can. And it's in him that I have eternal life. Can we be humble enough to say, I'm not good enough. I never could be. Would you receive that gift today? So Paul, who is in Christ, who's trusting Christ, who's, who is the one, you know, who makes him right before the law. And Paul knows that. He adheres more to the law of Moses than any of them because he's adhering to it through Christ. Anyone who's angry at Paul doesn't fully get the gospel. They've missed something there. I'm going to go into these last verses now, 27 to 36. It says, when the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone, everywhere, against our people and our law and this place. He's talking about the temple. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place, which isn't true. They'd previously seen Tromphimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions, seizing Paul. They grabbed him from the temple and immediately the gates of the temple were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So Paul's getting a beating at this point. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted at one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, get rid of him, get rid of him. Amazing. This is pretty wild, right? Things really kick off in this section. This section of scripture actually has so many parallels with what Jesus experiences. You know, think about Paul. Why is Paul in Jerusalem, right? Why has he gone there? He's gone there. 
to bring them a gift, okay? Seems a little bit ungrateful, doesn't it? He's gone there, he's probably bought one of the most largest financial gifts. Remember me saying last week, there's this, no, no one really ever did this huge cross-cultural, cross-masses of international money giving to another organization for them to distribute funds. It, it, was, it was revolutionary. And Paul brings this great gift. He travels from a far-off land, doesn't he? Comes from Macedonia and Achaia. Why? To bring this gift to ease poverty in Jerusalem. Jesus Christ comes. He comes from heaven, bringing with him the riches of eternal life. More than that, riches of becoming a child of God to humanity who are in a state of spiritual poverty. How's Paul received? He's completely scorned. They shout at him and they abuse him. And yet, he's gone there to try and bless them. What's he accused of? Eh? He's accused of blasphemy, isn't he? About speaking against the law, turning people away from the law of Moses. What's Jesus accused of? Ultimately, Jesus accused of blasphemy. Speaking against Moses. Speaking against their law. It, it's this similar scene all over again. The guys there, they completely miss the words of life. They miss the gospel because they're more concerned with that culture, with that heritage, with, that, with what's going on in that place. The thing is, if they really knew the scriptures, if they really knew the scriptures, they would see that every book of Moses, their culture, their traditions, all these things, is really about Jesus. If you think about it, Jesus himself says in John 5, 4, 46, it says, if you believe Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. Moses writes the first five books of the Bible. The first five books of the Bible, Jesus saying, thank you, are all about Jesus. That's what Paul speaks about. It's all about Jesus. So they drag Paul from the temple, don't they? They drag him from the temple and they shut the gates. Why do they shut the gates? Any thoughts? Why do they shut the gates? They shut the gates because they intend murder. And it says afterwards, whilst they're trying to kill him, the Roman soldiers come down. They're trying to kill him. Why do they shut the gates? They shut the gates because they intend to murder him and they don't want that sin, they don't want that corruption getting into the temple. But where is the temple in this picture? Where is the temple in this scene? It's Paul himself. It's right there. They, they, they completely missed the teaching that Christ on the cross, when he was on the cross and the curtain split in two, that dividing wall of separation between God and man was broken. The Holy of Holies exposed, right? Where God comes and dwells inside man. That now God doesn't have a temple for his people to go to, but rather he has a people for his temple, because the temple is the place where the presence of God dwells. That inside each and every single one of you, the presence of God dwells. Jesus risked it all, didn't he? Why did Jesus risk it all? Jesus risked it all. The disciples risked it all. Paul risked it all. Why? So that those who were trying to kill him, so that those who were intending murder would have an opportunity to be called sons of God. Wow. I think that's just, that's amazing. That's incredible. That we see Paul there, and he is taking this great risk. He knows it's a risk, going to this place. And he's gone there to alleviate poverty, 
and as is his way, preach the gospel. Christ comes and pays with his life. He takes that ultimate risk in a sense so that we could have life. And thousands of people have risked it all and many have paid with their lives. Why? To get us, 2,000 years later, the message that God Almighty has made a way for us to come back to him. And just think about it in that moment. <laughs> think about that moment now, just for a second, where they're trying to kill him. Paul sees them shut the temple gates, and it's like, these guys are going to murder me. These guys are hell-bent on murder. How comforting would that prophecy have been in that moment that prophecy which in, the, in in its moment not in God's view but in the view of mankind seemed like whoa don't go there this is too risky you can't go there we suddenly realized that that prophecy was a great comfort to Paul because how comforting would he have been then how much faith would he have had when he stood there these guys are trying to kill him and he's like bam bam me and change yeah you know, they haven't bound me yet. This is not what God said the plan was. I am not going to be killed. I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. Pah, you know, awesome. We need to remember God's perspective is different from ours. We just catch up to things as we go. And so this riot breaks out and the Romans step in. And just like at Christ's trial, they yell at him, don't they? Well, they, they're yelling like they yell, crucify him, crucify him at Christ's trial. They yell, get rid of him, get rid of him. And who knows, maybe in that moment, do you remember in Acts 9, Jesus says, I'm going to show him, speaking about Paul, how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Paul's a clever guy. He's probably noticing some similarities of stuff that went on because he was there in the crowds, not on the side of Christ, but opposing Christ during those times. Paul risks everything for the cause of God. He experiences amazing success and amazing challenges. You know, success isn't a given. We think about the world that's littered with the graves of men and women who took risks for God and paid with their lives. But was that wrong? Was that wrong? Not at all. You know, for us today, the challenge is can we break free of this false image of security? And I don't mean like live carelessly, you know, don't pay your rent, give all your money away. I don't mean that. I don't mean seek out super risky things. You know, like, I'm just going to jump out of here without a parachute. I don't mean that. Not at all. But when he calls, when he calls us to something and we're like, oh, that's so risky, God. That's so risky. Will we be like the Israelites in the wilderness who look and say, actually, we're not going to go into the next thing you're calling us into because that's just too risky. We're going to go back. Remember, they said we want to go back to Egypt. We want to go back. Why don't? Why do we leave Egypt? We want to go back to our slavery. Or will you be like Esther? We love Esther. You know, will you be like Esther when confronted with doing that super risky thing? Remember, she's confronted with, okay, go unannounced into the presence of the king. Doing that was a crime in those days, punishable by death. And what did she say? She didn't say, that's too risky. If I perish, I perish. She risked it all. And actually, she was already a queen. And this, I think, speaks to us a lot today, just as we come to an end. The heart of godly risk-taking, because she was a queen. She was living in luxury. 
but she put everything on the line. She risked poverty, she risked death. She put everything on the line. Why? Not for herself, not for her betterment, but to save her people, to save her people, to see others blessed. And that's the challenge for us today because it's very challenging. But you see, when we can break out of that illusion of security, we get free to discover this new kind of joy that despite the risk as we walk in it, we experience something with Christ where we're risking it all for someone else. So guys, here's a challenge today for you. Just as Sarah plays, you just close, close your eyes and just meditate on, on this a little bit. Are you so risk adverse that if God tells you to do something that's risky, you know, you, you just wouldn't. Think about it. Are you willing to take a risk for the cause that he's calling you to? You know, God knows it, it's not that we're all called to massive extreme risks or all called to go to very difficult places or anything like that. But there, there could be things, and it's just an important message to think about. And it's when he speaks, despite the risk, how willing are we to walk it out? How willing are we to walk down the road with the shepherd, to carry on on the journey? And, you know, I... I find that exciting. I find that is a real adventure. You know, no great adventure ever had no risk. If, if Bilbo, if Bilbo Baggins just had to bury the ring at the end of the garden, it wouldn't be very like exciting, would it? Wouldn't be a good story. Risk with God. You know, people, it is the greatest adventure. It's the greatest adventure the wisest way to live as opposed to doing other kinds of things and risks to find adventure in life. A life lived risking it all for the cause of Christ. And remember, guys, at the heart of that call, at the heart of that risk, isn't you finding your purpose, isn't you being elevated, isn't you being glorified in any way, but actually it's you serving others, and saving others. It's you on your knees glorifying the Son who in turn will raise you up and glorify you. So Father, guys, just meditate on that a moment. Father, I just, I just pray, Father, for each of us, wherever we're at in our lives, wherever we're at, you know the, what's risky for each of us, right? Lord, Lord, I just pray that we would be a radical church, God. A radical church that does the stuff that people look at and think, that is inspiring, that is awesome. I, Lord, I, I thank you, God. And Lord, I pray for courage for each person's heart here. Lord, if there are things, and you guys know this, if there are things that God's been speaking to you about and you're sat on the fence and you think, oh, I just can't do it, it's too much, it's too much. And I know what that's like. I've sat on the fence for years on some stuff. It can be scary. If that is you, I encourage you, do it. And come and speak to me and say, I feel God's telling me to do this. I'd love to walk with you through it. And Father, I just pray for that courage, whatever stage we're at, Lord, that you would just surround us. Surround us by your spirit. And like great warriors, God, that we would walk forward 
And with the words of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego on our lips, that, you know, Lord, that you would deliver us, that you would come through for us, Lord, that you're mighty, God. But even if it doesn't work out exactly how we envision it to, to be, that you are still the Lord, that you are still the good, good Father, you are still awesome. Right, let's just take a moment. Spirit, just come and fill this place just now. Lord, I pray that you break our heart for what breaks yours, God. Lord. Yeah. Lord, I, I pray, Lord, that, um, yeah, that here and on the lives or on the podcast, God, that you'd just be laying seeds of mighty men and mighty women of God, Lord, that would, with great courage and valor, just run into the face of the unknown, trusting, Lord, that you see all, God, that you've already seen that space, that you've already been in that place. And, and Lord, I just, I praise your name, God. I thank you, God. I thank you that there is no better, no more exciting way to live or place to live in, Lord than in the center of your calling for us, God, no matter what the risk. In your name, amen.